This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Administrator Power, thank you for appearing today. I'm pleased that you have been an engaged partner when it comes to the United States humanitarian aid and international development initiatives. And while I may not agree with every element of the request, it is refreshing to see a USAID budget proposal that demonstrates seriousness and thoughtfulness. And with the House just passing the Ukraine Supplemental Package, which provides nearly $4.4 billion for USAID, I'm pleased uh, and hope that we are going to move it quickly uh, in the Senate, maybe as early as tomorrow. Obviously, this is a lot of money, and we need to make sure that the executive branch engages in meaningful ongoing consultation as the money is being spent and that we are conducting appropriate oversight. Under the Trump administration, the value of economic development and foreign assistance in advancing U.S. foreign policy was met with skepticism. They hobbled USAID from fulfilling its mission, demoralizing the workforce and risking decades of U.S. investment into some of the most vulnerable parts of the world. The transactional approach the Trump administration took through USAID towards providing assistance to countries at the start of the pandemic was appalling. When it comes to responding to natural or man-made disaster, our foreign aid program should help save the lives of those in dire need around the world, not on the basis of politics, but out of moral obligation. This is the standard that has been used for decades, and I trust you are committed to fulfilling that vision at USAID and to elevating the work of USAID's development and assistance professionals. Obviously, our immediate attention is on the fallout of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, Russian forces have bombed maternity wards and kindergartens. They have used sexual violence as a weapon of war. They have executed civilians hand-tied behind their backs. In addition to these war crimes, Putin's invasion has precipitated a refugee crisis and exacerbated a major global food security crisis across Africa and the Middle East. As we deliver humanitarian relief in Europe and beyond, the United States must elevate the needs of women, girls, and other at-risk populations and supporting neighboring countries hosting a huge influx of Ukrainian refugees. And while addressing this crisis and its fallout, we cannot afford to overlook the rest of the world. When commodity prices soar, that affects everyone. And I am extremely concerned about the risk of famine in the Horn of Africa. Additionally, the retreat of democracy in Africa is threatening gains made in the Sahel and dashing the aspirations for participatory politics of millions across the continent. Whether it is conflict in Ethiopia or kleptocracy in the Democratic Republic of Congo or a coup in Sudan, USAID is America's first responder, supporting democracy, good governance, and providing life-saving assistance to those in need. Health systems across the globe have been strained from the last two years of the pandemic. COVID hospitalizations or deaths are down, but the threat remains. New COVID subvariants continue to emerge, and I am not convinced that we are prepared. From vaccine distribution to strengthening our preparedness, this is an issue that affects the safety of everyone on the planet and remains a national security threat here in the United States. USAID is a critical part of the United States effort to prevent detect and respond to future pandemic threats. Along with Africa, Latin America and the Caribbean were hard hit by COVID-19. 
At the same time, the region is struggling against the resurgence of authoritarianism from Cuba to Venezuela, and now the consolidation of the region's third dictatorship in Nicaragua. Violent criminals from El Salvador to Mexico are undermining civilian security, exacerbating the forced migration and refugee crisis across the region. Our neighbors in the hemisphere need our assistance. We need to expand inclusive economic opportunity and strengthen democratic institutions. At a time of such great upheaval and distress, I'm reassured that we have a USAID administrator who bore witness to the siege of Sarajevo and Putin's aggression in Chechnya. To successfully provide emergency aid, support democratic governance, empower women and vulnerable populations, USAID must be a place where all Americans can serve. I look forward to hearing your plans for modernizing the workforce to meet today's challenges, in particular how you will integrate the chief diversity officer into these efforts. And I hope that by partnering with small businesses here at home, our aid programs can have positive impacts both in the U.S. and abroad. In closing, let me reinforce just how critical all of these efforts are. When we don't address economic challenges, it leads to destabilization. When we don't promote prosperity, it leads to human suffering. When we don't show up, it gives the bad guys a chance to get a foothold. Administrator Power, I know you strongly believe in these principles, and I look forward to your testimony. With that, let me turn to the ranking member for his opening remarks. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, welcome, Administrator Power. Glad to have you here. Certainly, you're at the center of uh, one of the most important uh, undertakings uh, that we do as America internationally. Before we get started, I want to try to reset a little bit about what our understandings are here. During your confirmation hearing on March 23rd, uh, 2021, you pledged, quote, to work tirelessly with members on both sides of the aisle and to, quote, uh, in, uh, be transparent and accessible. So you can well imagine um, I was disappointed by the nine-month delay in getting responses to the questions for the record. Nine months is way, way, way too long. Um, these were submitted at your first budget hearing on July 14, 2021. One member of the majority has just received a response this week. And uh, we're going to have to do better than that, do a lot better than that, uh, if we're going to do what we're required to do, and that is our uh, oversight obligation. I've spent all my adult life in either the executive branch or the legislative branch, and I know the, the legislative branch is always an irritant to the, to the uh, executive branch, but it was set up that way because of our important oversight role. Now, turning to the budget, I'm concerned uh, by the administration's continued uh, misalignment of priorities and resources. For example, even with historic levels of hunger and displacement, the president proposes to reduce humanitarian assistance by 34% while pr prioritizing massive increases for vague climate commitments. I suspect, I think undoubtedly, the president is counting on Congress to make the humanitarian counts whole while he focuses on securing funding for the favored projects. This is an unlikely uh, outcome. If the administration uh, is going to propose such reductions, they should at least get serious about spending, about spreading humanitarian aid dollars farther, including by eliminating the cargo preference requirements that have outlived their statutory purpose, unnecessarily uh, increased costs and delayed deliveries of life-saving food by months. I'm eager to work with you to, to finally put more food uh, into our food aid. As you probably know, and I think almost everybody on this committee has experienced, 
virtually uh, everyone we meet with from the international community is concerned about the coming food uh, scarcity. It's going to be a real issue with what's going on in Ukraine, what's uh, going on with the drought in the areas that are uh, particularly uh, affected by that. So uh, everybody's going to have to step up and going to have to redouble our efforts. I uh, also have concerns about the president's prioritization of multilateral commitments for global health over funding for proven bilateral programs. This includes an unprecedented request for $6.5 billion in mandatory spending for an international financing mechanism and a health workers initiative that is uh, nowhere fully baked yet and not ready. It is clear, and indeed I believe more than clear, that carefully planned strategically targeted foreign assistance can advance the national security, the economic and, humani and humanitarian interests of the United States. It's also clear that poorly planned and executed programs can have the opposite effect. We need to get it right. So I'm pleased by the emphasis on promoting democracy, rights, and good governance. In too many places, democracy is in retreat, from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. I'm eager to hear how this budget specifically will help promote good governance, combat corruption, and empower democratic voices. Which brings me to Ukraine. The United States has been very, very generous in its efforts to get life-saving assistance to the people made vulnerable by Putin's unprovoked, brutal, and murderous war in Ukraine. Uh, as the United States begins to reopen its embassy in Kyiv, I hope USAID will also return and re resume its in-person efforts to ensure aid is actually getting to local networks and that are, that are committed to going the last mile. In Africa, I remain concerned about how USAID, USAID is approaching assistance to Sudan and South Sudan. Both countries continue to face complex crises, and it is clear, quite clear, the United States' uh, response is not moving the needle. Uh, I understand the complexity, I understand the difficulties, but the needle isn't moving. Things have to be done differently. The situations, uh, these situations are unsustainable, require a review by the agency. Meanwhile, in Kenya, accountability for the mismanagement and theft of U.S. assistance, particularly global health assistance, remains elusive. I've requested USAID's uh, office, uh, OIG, make more frequent inspections of troubled USAID missions, such as in Kenya, so the agency can better uphold its commitment to zero tolerance, which we all know you have, for waste, fraud, and abuse. Turning to the Indo-Pacific, I want to understand in greater detail exactly how USAID will use the countering PRC malign influence fund, especially when it comes to building economic resilience among partners. Regarding the Pacific Islands, we have stepped up our diplomatic and development engagement with the Pacific Islands in recent years, but there is more to do, including alongside Australia and New Zealand. I want to understand what USAID is doing in this critical part of the world. Regarding the Middle East, I've been very vocal about my concerns with this administration's Syria policy. Caesar sanctions have been too few and were failing to curb Arab outreach to the Assad regime. International and economic isolation remain the best tools to seek accountability for Assad's crimes. We can never return to business as usual, and Assad has got to be held accountable. In the West Bank and Gaza, as we continue discussions on assistance to the Palestinians, we must push harder for Palestinian reforms. Specifically, we must achieve complete elimination of the pay-to-slay program and use any and all leverage to do so. On Afghanistan, I'm concerned by the administration's plan to issue a national interest waiver that would allow 
direct beneficial, uh, direct financial benefit to the Taliban. Instead of opening the door to financial assistance, we should be conditioning it upon Taliban, Taliban first, first meeting human rights and counterterrorism benchmarks. The Taliban's recent edict, ejecting women and girls from school, and the reimposition of guardianship laws are exceptionally troubling. We should focus on creating real leverage if we ever want to see changes in the Taliban conduct. I look, work, I look forward to working with you to address these challenges, and they are heavy challenges, including by carefully aligning priorities and resources. We look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. So we will uh, start with the administrator's testimony. Again, welcome. I know how much you love being here with us today. Um, and so uh, we would ask you to summarize uh, your statement in around five minutes or so so that we can have a conversation with you. And please go ahead. You're recognized. Thank you so much, uh, Chairman Menendez, uh, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee, uh, Senator Johnson, Senator Cardin, Senator Kane, um, and others who will join us. Um, I do look forward to having the chance uh, to respond to some of uh, what you, Mr. Chairman, and you, Ranking Member Risch, have said in your opening statements. But let me use mine, if I could, uh, just to frame the discussion that I hope we can have over the next couple of hours. I'd like to start just by saying it is no overstatement to say that we are gathering really at a profound juncture in history. For 16 straight years, we have seen the number of people living under democratic rule decline. The world is now less free and less peaceful than at any point since the end of the Cold War. And for several years, as we've seen vividly, graphically, and horrifically in recent days, in Ukraine, autocracies have grown increasingly brazen on the world stage, claiming that they can get things done for their people with a speed and effectiveness that they say democracies cannot match. Today, we see just how empty that rhetoric is and just how dark the road to autocracy can be. From Vladimir Putin's brutal war on a peaceful neighbor in Ukraine to the People's Republic of China's campaign of genocide and crimes against humanity in Xinjiang. Now, with autocracies, with autocracies on their back heel, now is the moment for the world's democracies to unite and take a big step forward after so many years of losing ground. If the world's free nations, with the United States in the lead, are able to unite the efforts of our allies, the private sector, and our multilateral institutions and marshal the resources necessary to help partner nations, we have a chance to extend the, extend the reach of peace, prosperity, and human dignity to billions more people. This has been USAID's mission since its inception six decades ago, and I am truly grateful to you for your continued bipartisan support of our efforts to save lives, strengthen economies, prevent fragility and conflict, promote resilience, and bolster freedom around the world. USAID's work is a testament to the fact that America cares about the plight of others, that we can confidently accomplish mammoth goals that no other country can, and that the work we do abroad also matters to Americans here at home. It makes us safer. It might makes us more prosperous. 
and it engenders goodwill that strengthens alliances and global cooperation and creates a better future for generations to come. Thanks to your past support, the United States has helped get more than half a billion COVID-19 vaccines to people in 115 countries. We've led life-saving humanitarian and disaster responses in 68 countries, including Haiti, Ethiopia, and Ukraine. Helped enhance pathways for legal migration to the United States while working to strengthen worker protections. And we've assisted the relocation and resettlement of Afghan colleagues and refugees under the most dire of circumstances while pivoting our programming in Afghanistan to address ongoing food insecurity and public health needs and continuing to push to keep women and girls in school. We're also making strides to become much more nimble as an agency at a time of immense demands, shoring up a depleted workforce by welcoming new recruits and operating with greater flexibility. The Biden-Harris administration's FY 2023 discretionary request of $29.4 billion will build on these steps forward, giving us the ability to invest in the people and systems to meet the world's most significant challenges so the United States can seize this moment in history. Last night, with bipartisan support, the House took a major step in that direction by passing a nearly $40 billion package for Ukraine, and we are hopeful for its speedy passage in the Senate. Yet the challenges we face are significant. Putin's war has displaced more than 13 million people, including two-thirds of Ukraine's children. It has led to serious disruptions to global food, fuel, and fertilizer supplies around the world, further taxing the already overwhelmed international humanitarian system. Two difficult years of, COVID of the COVID-19 pandemic have set back development gains, and despite the United States' leadership in vaccinating the world, that job remains unfinished. Multi-billion dollar climate shocks appear each year with more frequency, and continued humanitarian crises remain in Ethiopia and elsewhere. Yet as grave as the challenges are, I sincerely believe the opportunity before us is even larger. By providing the resources necessary to seize this moment, the United States can galvanize commitments from our allies and our private sector partners and demonstrate to the world that democracies can deliver in a way that autocracies cannot. These actions are key to reversing years of democratic decline and creating a more stable, peaceful, prosperous future for people at home and abroad. With your support, USAID will move aggressively to grasp this opportunity to build that brighter future for all. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Madam Administrator. We'll start a series of five-minute questioning. I'll recognize myself. Um, can you walk us through how this budget request, referring to both to the request before us and the supplemental, paired with that Ukraine supplemental addresses humanitarian funding needs to stabilize conditions in key parts of the world during this extraordinary moment? Thank you. To, be, to make sure I follow, Mr. Chairman, you mean the, the supplemental request pending before you, the second supplemental request, yes? Yeah. The, well, the budget request has an additional 4% increase in humanitarian funding for FY23. Add to that the supplemental. Correct. 
that we just talked about and talk to me about how that either meets or doesn't meet the challenge of addressing humanitarian funding to stabilize conditions across the globe. Thank you. Well, first, let me just step back, as, as you did a little bit in your opening statement, and discuss the colossal needs right now, the, the walloping effects of the combination of COVID, intensification of climate-related shocks, more conflict than any time since the end of the Cold War, and then compounding all of that, uh, the neutralization at best of the breadbasket of the world, uh, uh, Ukraine. Uh, to give a couple examples of, of countries in which we work, 85% um, of Egypt's grains come from Ukraine, 81% of Lebanon's. Lebanon, as you know, was in no uh, great economic shape before Putin's invasion. World Food Program uh, prices, the price of doing business, the price of securing basic commodities and shipping them have gone way up, 50% higher just to operate than it was last year. And now, of course, uh, a huge new uh, displaced population inside Ukraine, plus the nearly 6 million refugees who fled outside Ukraine. So we are seeing these cascading effects. I think what the supplemental uh, passed last night by the House that will be coming to you does significantly is it gives us the ability to meet the needs of those brave Ukrainians who have remained inside their borders, uh, again, everything from psychosocial, those who've suffered sexual violence, uh, to being able to provide shelter. We've all seen those large residential complexes that have been um, decimated uh, by Putin's aggression. Um, and then, of course, just food and cash needs. We want to get markets up and running. We do not want, nor do the Ukrainians want, to be dependent on humanitarian assistance uh, for long. This is an emergency phase. Uh, what is absolutely critical is that the Ukrainians themselves uh, be able to feed themselves, which is what they've always been able to do. So then when you uh, extend, again, the ripple effects and the cascading effects uh, to sub-Saharan Africa, where one in every two or three pieces of bread is made with Ukrainian wheat, you can see why, uh, again, the, the request that came up here, both in, in our, in our uh, budget request for 23, but more importantly now, this immediate request uh, entails such a substantial increase in funding. Yeah, so uh, in light of that explanation, um, as you pointed out, many countries, especially in the Middle East, heavily depend on uh, the grain and food commodity imports. Uh, and the Russian invasion has threatened, as you suggested, the breadbasket of the world. Syria and Yemen rely significantly <clears throat> on food aid provided by USAID and, of course, the challenges in Lebanon, Tunisia, and Egypt, which can s spur widespread public anger and social unrest. Uh, the, while this is a very significant request, is it fair to say this is not going to meet the totality of the challenge before us? Well... There are a number of contingencies that come into play here. I mean, we are also supplementing this surge in humanitarian assistance um, with uh, interventions, uh, you know, by our missions in more than 80 countries where these vulnerabilities exist, by, almost by definition, developing countries, uh, to try to ensure more precision use of fertilizer, since less fertilizer is now going to be available in the open market and the prices are going up. Um, using building on Feed the Future and other initiatives. Uh, there's a lot that governments can do uh, to mobilize their populations, and we're hopeful that the World Bank and IMF 
the fund, the Solidarity and Resilience Fund that they have created will provide access to finance for some of those countries. So there are some contingencies there. In addition, and this is really important, and I know some members are seized with this up here, Ukraine, Ukrainian farmers have been unbelievably brave. They are out there uh, sowing their harvest, uh, wearing in some cases flak jackets with metal detectors next to them to be able to detect unexp unexploded ordinances. And it is the Russian blockade on Odessa and other southern ports that has made it impossible for them to move uh, their crops, their grains, from granaries out into the open market. And so again, if we were able to find a way through rail, through road, through potential other port access uh, to get to the Baltic ports, or if they were able to uh, repel uh, Russia's uh, horrific uh, blockade, which again is costing lives not only in Ukraine, but will cost lives all around the world, uh, that would be something that could bring, uh, again, more grains to the open market, bring the prices down. My own down. perception is, is that this will not meet the challenge of global food insecurity, which has been exacerbated uh, by the war in Ukraine and the resulting consequences of that war. And so, um, and then when you have food insecurity and people are going hungry, uh, they are then driven to do things they might not otherwise do. One is to move in search of food, and then you have migration. Others is to fight for food, and then you have conflict. And so this is, in my mind, beyond being a good global neighbor, it's about do we want to see more migration? Do we want to see more conflict where ultimately U.S. national interests and securities are affected? Uh, I would say no. And so I hope we will get ready uh, for what will be a bigger challenge than what you have here before your budget or what the supplemental provides, which is very Ukraine-focused and with its neighboring countries, which I applaud. But this is not going to meet the challenge uh, that we have. I have other questions about labor and diversity and other things that are not related to food insecurity or Ukraine. But for now, I'll yield and turn to the ranking member for his question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Picking up where uh, the chairman left off, I. I think his assessment is absolutely right, and that is that uh, there, there's real doubt whether or not uh, the world's food supply is going to be enough for the world's population. And the outline of uh, the consequences of that that the chairman just uh, iterated, I think, are, are uh, very real. And uh, obviously, uh, you can't, uh, as USAID, you don't put your arms around all of that stuff, but your job is to get as much food out there as you possibly can. What, what is our assessment, dire assessment of, of the coming situation? Is that what you're hearing also from the people you deal with worldwide? I mean, first, if I may just go meta on the exchange that you have had. I mean, this is exactly the bipartisanship that has been reflected in uh, your collective efforts uh, to bring more food online and to give us the resources we need to meet humanitarian needs. So let me just first say thank you for the spirit of the of, of both sets of comments. Yes, Senator, this is what we are hearing. I, I met with the uh, Ethiopian Minister of Finance now going on two and a half weeks ago, three weeks ago, and he described already the riots and the protests that were occurring in Ethiopia well and apart from Tigray and the crisis that we know already exists uh, there and in Afar and Amhara, 
uh, because of the increase uh, in the price of fertilizer. And farmers just saying, we, we can't afford this. Where are the subsidies? And then the Ethiopian government saying, you know, we, we don't have the, the fiscal space here to provide those subsidies. What are we going to do? So that's just, again, those kinds of protests. I think we see it in the data, even up to this point, on COVID-related food insecurity over the last uh, two and a half years. If you look at some of the intention to migrate surveys of people uh, you know, who are crossing borders and or who are uh, attempting to cross even into the United States, you can see a major spike in food insecurity as grounds uh, for uh, migration. So I think an already unstable world that is already experiencing more conflict, uh, more political protests you know, in the last several years than there have been in any comparable three-year period in the last hundred years, you're, you're going to see those effects, those destabilizing effects uh, getting massively exacerbated uh, by what is happening right now. And remember, we were in a food crisis before one man decided to try to lop off part of another country. We were in one, the, the most severe food crisis that any of us had seen, and now that is being compounded by this horrific uh, aggression. Well, I, uh, I, I appreciate that, and I, I think uh, all of this is, uh, is frightening, to say the least, but uh, it's coming, and I guess we, we all need to think about it and how, how we're going to get through this. Your reference to the horn, I'm, I'm, every day I'm constantly uh, uh, frustrated by what's happening there and, and the lack of a solution uh, or, or the apparent solution. Uh, What's your view there? Are we, are we going to just continue to uh, prop up what's going on there with this, with food to keep people from starving, and it just goes on? What, what's your view of, uh, of what happens there? Uh, what's the end game here, if any? Well, of course, we want to meet the needs, as always, uh, of people facing uh, desperate food uh, insecurity. But as you noted, with uh, food shortages around the world or access to food uh, so limited, prices going up, um, there's going to be ever more demands, as we've been discussing, on, for example, USAID's humanitarian aid budget. The fact that in Ethiopia there are warehouses upon warehouses filled with food where the only thing standing in the way of feeding starving people and malnourished children is a denial of access uh, by government forces, that that cannot stand. It couldn't stand before, and it cannot stand now. So I, I don't I don't think we are propping up. I think we are pressing the government. There's been the most modest of progress with 200 trucks getting in, as you probably know, uh, since you've been tracking it so closely since the humanitarian truce was was declared. But we need 500 trucks a week uh, to get into uh, Tigray and Amhara and Afar. And we're looking at potentially a million people facing famine conditions by next month uh, if that flow doesn't start to move. And I, I do think the Ethiopian authorities are feeling the pressure. There is a truce. There's a different kind of vibe, for lack of a better word, in our engagements. Uh, again, more, more is getting through, but it's a trickle, and it has to be a flood to make up for lost time. I appreciate your views on that. My time's up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Clark. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Madam Ambassador, thank you very much for your extraordinary service to our country for over so many years. The challenges today are extreme. You've already pointed out some, but to find the most alarming is the trend of decline of democratic states, as you pointed out during your testimony. 
Uh, we see every time there's a survey done, less countries, more countries are less free. So we need in our foreign assistance to balance the needs that are out there. We have to be engaged in regards to health issues, nutrition issues, education issues, gender issues, housing issues, economic opportunity. All those are critically important and all could use more funding. But there's a fundamental need to support democratic institutions. And the amount of resources that we allocate for support of democratic institutions is very limited and the needs are very great. So I want to just uh, give you one suggestion of where some funds uh, could be diverted. Uh, as, as I understand it, uh, the fund that was set up uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union for supporting uh, democratic institutions and market economies, uh, they were set up in the individual countries. One was set up in Russia. And, and obviously, uh, it's my understanding it's about $153 million in that account that has been frozen because there is no opportunity right now to use those funds for that purpose. It seems to me those funds could be diverted. And as I was uh, questioning the other day, uh, the, the nominee to be ambassador to Ukraine, yes, we have a lot of work to do in Ukraine, but one of the issues we have to do is work on strengthening their democratic institutions. We know before Russia's incursions, there was challenges in Ukraine. So, so I guess my question to you, would that be a creative use to transfer those funds for Ukraine? or to use them considering the limited amount of funds you have in regards to democracy being frozen in a country where we can't use it? Thank you, Senator. Um, let me first just say, since I'm up here uh, uh, to talk at least in part about the FY 2023 request, that we really have attempted um, to do a soup to nuts review of our democracy and anti-corruption programming in order to try to right size it for this moment in history, rather than I think what you had seen is the kind of relative global complacency that had come to pass, you know, certainly after the fall of the wall and we talk at the end of history and all the rest. Uh, but you saw, as you know, over time, democracy funding uh, just going down, 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 down and not being compensated for, for example, with uh, additional resources in the anti-corruption space. Um, uh, and, and we're trying to remedy that in the, in the 23 request, really to try to scale the support that we give, you know, frontline human rights defenders, independent journalists, social movements, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, labor movements uh, or, or workers or students or young people of the kind who help bring down the Bashir regime uh, in Sudan before uh, that progress was offset uh, over the course of the last six months. So I just, I, I want you to know that when you look at the numbers, you will see us really actually trying to resource something we all claim we care about, but have not resourced commensurate with our national interest in funding democratic institutions and those who will bravely stand up for democratic principles around the world. With regard to the Enterprise Fund, all I can say here, I think, is just, just to assure you that no stone would go unturned if there are resources available to be funding anti-corruption and democracy work. I think there is a range of views uh, that we are trying to sort through on, on whether that uh, those resources are accessible, but happy to talk to you or, or have our team talk to your staff. I appreciate about what that. Might be available. I just think the optics of taking money from Russia account, which is not going to be used and using for Ukraine, is the right optics these days as well. So just 
point that out to you. Let me ask one additional question, if I might. Uh, the administration is requesting $400 million for countering People's Republic of China, PRC's Malign Influence Fund. Sounds great to me, but explain to me what's that, how you're going to use that $400 million. Um, thank you. Well, what we could do is get you a mapping of what we've done with those resources up to this point. Um, suffice it to say that it is uh, one of the loan, maybe loan is too strong, but one of the rare uh, funds at USAID that comes unearmarked and actually gives us the ability to react quickly to uh, a moment of opportunity. So whether that is, for example, a group of civil society actors who might be exposing um, you know, some kind of uh, corruption associated with some kind of large infrastructure project, or whether that might be uh, an investment in, uh, a, you know, uh, a, an alternative source of, of energy. Uh, it has basically been used to give us flexible funding to try to draw on USAID's comparative advantages over the Chinese investment that we know is blanketing not only the world, but the hemisphere. Um, so again, this is only a modest plus up uh, from a fund that was created before my time as administrator. Uh, but I can tell you it's, it's, you know, when there is a democratic opening and it's in a place where China has sought to, to swoop in, and again, there's virtually no place now where that's not uh, the case, um, this ability to fund democratic actors on the ground or to fund an economic growth program that will draw people you know, toward a free market approach to fund uh, an open and inclusive, uh, support for open and inclusive uh, digital ecosystem as distinct from uh, a heavy-handed uh, surveillance uh, internet infrastructure. Those are the kinds of projects. And again, we can give you a, a rundown on, on how that those resources have been spent. And Senator Cardin, I, I don't want to eat up your time, but I have to just say one thing to my time. My time is your time up. Then I'm already, eating, eating someone else's time. I'm sorry, but <laughs> Senator Rish made a point about questions for the record because here I am promising these things, and and he made a point earlier that we had been very slow. And I, I just want to say I'm, I'm I take personal responsibility for that. And uh, whatever the process dysfunction that caused such a long lag between you all posing questions of this nature and us getting back to you. I apologize for that. We are fixing uh, the process and that will not happen again. So I just didn't want to leave that unaddressed. As and I'll look more forward, promises. I'll look forward to following up on those points that you did. Thank you. Mr. Okay, thank you. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Chairman Menendez. Uh, Ambassador Bauer, good to see you here. Um, Chairman Menendez, I'd like to start out by uh, submitting for the record a letter that I sent to President Biden in March of this year, raising my concern about high fertilizer prices and potential shortages there, if I might. Thank you. Without objection. Um, and Administrator Power, I'd like to turn to you. Um, I grew up in a rural area. I was president of my high school Future Farmers of America organization. I remember studying then the theory of a Dr. Thomas Malthus who predicted that the world was going to run out of food if the population continued to grow. Well, Dr. Malthus was wrong. He's one of the original doomsday prognosticators, and he turned out to be wrong because he forgot about something very important. That's American ingenuity, particularly when it comes to the agribusiness arena. Thanks to innovation in agribusiness, America's been able to dramatically increase yields. We've been able to feed the world, and that's because modern farming techniques have been at the forefront. The many countries that would like to take our modern farming techniques, that would like to take that intellectual property. Uh, but our agricultural innovation, particularly in nitrogen fertilizer, 
has made a huge difference in terms of our nation's ability to support feeding the world's population. I'd like to turn to some comments that you made on ABC News recently. And I'm just going to read what I understand that was, that was said. Um, talking about fertilizer shortages causing the loss of production, caused by the loss of production in Russia and Ukraine, did you say that it would hasten the transition to natural solutions like manure and compost that, quote, would have been in the interest of farmers to have made eventually anyway? Those comments are accurate. Can I offer some clarification? Well, I'd like to, to, to just also ask you this. Did you also say in that same interview that you should never let a crisis go to waste? So in the interview, and, and uh, I would definitely rephrase uh, uh, my response to the question that was posed, if I could do it again, but rest assured, uh, the chemical fertilizer uh, has been a critical part of the agricultural gains that our partners have made uh, uh, globally. I mean, there's just no question, whether through Feed the Future, we d we've talked previously, I think, in this setting about farmer-to-farmer uh, -farmer initiatives and the insight and innovation that farmers here bring. All I was meaning to say, and it was coming out of the meeting that I referenced earlier with the Ethiopian Minister of Finance, who was saying, in this moment of desperation, where Ethiopian farmers, for example, have been unable to, to secure fertilizer on the open market because the prices have gone up so much with Russia's invasion, given that Russia is such a large exporter of fertilizer, that they are now scrambling and finding these alternative uh, means of trying to fertilize. And, and, but in no way did I mean to, to suggest that there's, uh, you know, that we're en route to, to moving away from, uh, you know, programming with our partners using uh, fertilizer that has been so effective. You, you serve in, in a very gains. critical leadership role, Ambassador. Uh, I appreciate that role. I think the world appreciates the role that you serve. And you need to be, I think, very cognizant of our strengths and I think be very careful about what's being said. I've heard sure. members of this administration talk about high gas prices being good because it forces a transition to you know, alternative fuel vehicles, saying that high prices and fertilizer are good to force a transition that should happen anyway. When you're forcing us back into manure, compost, and that type of thing, that's going to precipitate a catastrophe. That will precipitate disasters that will be felt on a global that basis. That was not the intention, sir. It really is this emergency phase. They, it's not a question of, for many of these farmers, synthetic fertilizer, you know, yes or no, they, or chemical fertilizer, yes or no, they are just not able to access it now because the price is out of reach. So the combination of the humanitarian assistance, the additional funding that we're able to do through our agricultural programs, uh, that you know, we, we want to be in a position where they are able to access fertilizer in the, in the way that they have been able to do in the past. Well, I certainly want us to be in a position to support uh, with American innovation and innovations like modern agriculture to support continuing uh, the increases in yields that we have seen and will need to see. I'm very concerned that we're going to see food shortages come up here on a global basis. And I think we need to be very careful, A, as we speak about this, and then B, uh, what we decide to do to support it and move it in the proper direction. And moving back in time and moving back in history is not the right direction. I would also like, uh, Mr. Chairman, to submit for the record an article here from, um, uh, an article here from uh, Foreign Affairs magazine. Um, it's about what happened in Sri Lanka when they mandated going to organic farming and away from modern farming. And um, Madam Ambassador, if you ha haven't read this, I would commend you read it, but I think it tells a, a very dire tale of what can happen when a move like what was described on ABC News is actually taken seriously and um, delivered a disaster in Sri Lanka. So thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Madam Ambassador. Thank you, sir. Without objection, the article will be included.
Senator Barrasso. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Madam Ambassador, nice to see you again. I had a couple of questions. We met with the Ukrainian uh, ambassador to the United States yesterday, a number of uh, senators did, with regard to humanitarian assistance. So in terms to, of the humanitarian crisis created by Russia, Congress understands the importance of taking immediate action to quickly get food to those who desperately need it. Uh, in March of 2022, Congress provided about $100 million for the Title II Food for Peace program for Ukraine. It's been two months. The food aid has still not been delivered to Ukraine. In fact, not, none of the money has even been, been spent. And since we've already committed to this two months ago, why hasn't the USAID been able to get the food assistance to the people of Ukraine? Um, well, Senator, I, I'm not sure if that was the ambassador's characterization generally of food assistance. That would surprise me. Um, so I can, I can run you through the, the food assistance. Well, I'll, that I'll clarify. We, we met with the ambassador, and a number of senators have raised this issue. This was not the ambassador's position. We, okay. we are asking a number of questions. Are you getting everything? Has it gotten there? Where are we now? Got it. Okay. Well, we are, uh, as you know, the largest funder, uh, and I, I want to distinguish international organizations from our Ukrainian partners, so maybe if you just give me a second to come back to that. But we are the largest uh, funder of WFP, which it's true, did take some time to establish their warehouses and to scale up. They were not present uh, in Ukraine anymore when the war broke out, despite uh, our warnings ahead of time that this uh, war was coming or this invasion was coming. They are now reaching 7 million uh, people inside Ukraine. It's not enough. They'd be the first uh, to, uh, excuse me, they're reaching uh, 3.5 million people in Ukraine with a goal of getting to, to 7 million by the end of June. Um, we have provided, we USAID have provided, thanks to you, uh, $205 million in emergency food assistance. We're also providing something that is less visible, Senator, and that is cash assistance more than $109 million of cash assistance, again, through partners like World Food Program and others. And that is to try to get markets up and running because, again, we want to move away from food assistance as soon as possible, given that Ukraine is fully capable of feeding uh, itself. So uh, there is an issue, I think, with uh, uh, our sort of, or not an issue so much as a question about whether we have the right balance between support for international organizations and support for Ukrainian partners. I think one of the really important dimensions of the recent, of the SUP that passed the House last night is that it promises potentially, if it passes the Senate, $7.5 billion in direct budget support for the Ukrainian government. They have a social service ministry, I talked to the social service minister yesterday, that itself provides cash assistance to internally displaced people, to elderly people, provides pensions, provides other forms of resources. If that can be scaled up, you could imagine a world in which international organizations would just be procuring things that Ukrainian actors on the ground would themselves not be able to procure. So now with regard to actual food commodities from uh, the United States itself, uh, I think that is something that usually does cost more and, and take a longer period of time. I will have to get back to you on where those commodities are and, and whether, to the degree that your understanding is accurate uh, why it would be that those would not yet have landed in Ukraine? Uh, those, are, those are the sort of questions I specifically have. I know in March we passed the Ukraine supplemental $2.65 billion for international disaster assistance. Again, that funding is understandably just sitting idle, idle is my understanding on that. Uh, USAID has only donated $50 million to the World Food Program. No, no, no th uh, that's not accurate, no, sir. Okay. Yeah. 
Another issue facing this quick delivery of critical food to those in need is shipping. U.S. law requires at least half of the vessels carrying government-authorized food aid on U.S. vessels. Are there, I understand, only four U.S.-flagged ships the U.S. government can use to ship the food aid. Uh, not one of the four ships is available right now. Uh, it's been estimated it could take an entire year to get the food to the people of Ukraine. In the case of an emergency like this, I know the President may waive that requirement. So since the Food for Peace program is run by USAID, have you requested a presidential waiver in order to address this issue? Um, uh, on, on this score, on this, uh, if you're asking specifically a waiver to get food into Ukraine, to the answer is no, because the food that we provide to Ukraine is provided in a different manner. Again, it isn't food commodities from here, just for reasons of cost and efficiency. But I, we have used that waiver, for example, to get food into Yemen, where U.S. carriers uh, will not travel. And we are grateful for some of the initiatives that are occurring up here, uh, as I understand it, in a bipartisan way, to try to uh, show congressional support for, for greater flexibility, given the, the urgent needs of the moment. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank Senator you. Sheen. Thank you. Um, Senator Menendez has passed the gavel to me, and I get to ask a question. So welcome, um, Administrator Power. We're delighted to have you here and really appreciate the effort that you and everyone at USAID is making on a daily basis to try and improve the lives of people around the world. I, I would like to begin with the global gag rule and the impact of, that that has had over the years, um, also known as the Mexico City policy, which has prohibited foreign non-government organizations from receiving U.S. global health assistance if they provide legal abortion services or advocacy for abortion law reform, even though that's done with their own funds. I, I am particularly concerned about this because what we know is that this policy has resulted in an increase, not a decrease, in the number of unsafe abortions. The policy causes more unintended pregnancies, higher rates of maternal, maternal mortality, and it leaves countless women at risk. So can you speak to the ramifications for USAID and our global health policies when that global gag rule is in effect and, and what we're doing now to help um, rebuild those partnerships with the organizations that are so critical to providing support for women and families around the world? Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, well, I think that uh, while there are, of course, uh, divisive issues um, as it relates to reproductive health or as it relates uh, uh, to, to family planning, I think we have endeavored, you know, over the life of this administration to restart programs uh, that were uh, suspended, you know, given the prior administration's policy I think we do still hear reports of uh, very conservative application of this administration's policy, a sort of hangover uh, from the prior uh, administration. Um, uh, but you know, I think I think it is extremely important. You'll see in the 23 budget request uh, a request for uh, historic 2.6 billion dollars um, for. Uh, women's and gender empowerment and rights broadly defined. Um, I think that will have ramifications, we hope, in this area of programming. Uh, but it is just extremely important uh, that women's rights uh, are protected and that women 
um, you know, get to enjoy the right to voluntary family planning, uh, which has not always been the case, as you know. Um, thank you very much for that. And another area that's really important as we think about how do we empower women around the world is promoting the ability of girls to stay in school, particularly secondary school, where there's persistent gender disparity. And again, how, how can USAID better provide holistic support to ensure that um, adolescent girls can stay enrolled and complete secondary school? Um, well, I think it's, and I, you know, again, I just mentioned the, the gender funding, gender-related funding uh, that is requested here in the 23 request. Um, but, you know, part of what is key is that all our areas of programming um, filter the programming through the recognition of the unlocking potential uh, that the education of women and girls, the rights of women and girls have for the rest of society. So. Our budget request, for example, uh, requests $693 million in basic education, $238 million uh, in higher education. There's a real emphasis in that programming on the education of girls uh, specifically. Um, uh, so, you know, of the million people, for example, reached with vocational training, half are girls and women. Um, we uh, you know, again, emphasize that this should be the filter through which our programming in a whole range of areas, whether it's microfinance, you know, in the agricultural space or education, uh, through which uh, we, we we filter our, our, our programming. I, I don't know that I can say that that has happened yet, but we are having now a gender advisor in every USAID mission around the world, so I'm hopeful that, that will accelerate that process. And. It, can you again speak to why that's so important? Um, because I think people people looking at it without having an understanding of what a difference it makes when um, girls and women are educated to not just their families, their communities, but their countries, um, don't appreciate why this is so important in our foreign policy. Well, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, grave humanitarian crises, uh, the, the grave humanitarian crisis that's underway right now, um, what you see is you know, when girls, for every additional year of education that girls have, that affects their family planning choices, that affects the number of mouths uh, that their families will be feeding, that affects uh, GDP. You see an incremental increase in a country's GDP for every extra year on average that, that girls are able to obtain uh, in education. Um, I mean, it is just as simple as do you want to unlock your, your country's uh, full potential or do you want to leave half of its potential uh, off the field? One, one thing I would draw your attention to, Senator, you're probably already tracking, but um, I find it really quite thrilling that President Biden's new infrastructure initiative, um, you know, sort of the, 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 which, the Build Back Better World uh, initiative as it was launched at the G7, includes in it a pillar on gender uh, as conceived of as infrastructure. And the piece of it that is so important, I think, is investments in the care economy. And so we are looking at, U at USAID and across our government about what we can do to catalyze investments there. And that has not been a significant area of focus in the policy space, the regulatory space, or the funding space, the program space. And so it's very exciting to imagine what it would mean also for women 
well and apart, even once they have obtained their education, once they begin having children, they feel the need uh, to drop out of the, the, the workforce in order to raise those children, in part because they do not have uh, care possibilities that they can draw upon. We've seen in our country, you can imagine how much more severe the effects are even uh, in developing countries. So that's something that's a really ambitious new initiative. The Gates Foundation and others are squarely behind it, and I think we could bring a lot of uh, resources uh, to this agenda, which would have additional catalytic effects. Well, thank you. It is very exciting. I'm out of time, but but I can't finish my questioning without pointing out how really horrified I have been, and I know that this is shared by the women in the Senate as well as um, all of our male colleagues with the Taliban's reversal of their commitment to allow girls into school in Afghanistan. So um, I would just urge that we are looking at doing anything possible to try and um, support women and girls in Afghanistan, and I know you share that commitment. Um, thank you, um, Senator Risch. Senator Menendez gave me the gavel, but I assume you have already. Okay. I, I, I appreciate the battlefield promotion, sir. I'll Sen try not to abuse my power. Senator Booker. Thank you very much. Uh, Chairman Booker, excuse me. Chairman Booker. <laughs> Acting Chairman Booker. This, this Ambassador Power, it's good well. to see you. <laughs> good to see you. Um, thank you so much. I want to jump right in and then get to my colleagues. Um, I know that food insecurity has already been talked about, uh, and I'm happy to see Congress moving to include over $4 billion of emergency funding uh, into the International Disaster Assistance Program. A report just came out, though, that the um, uh, that in Afghanistan, about 10 million children right now, it's a staggering number, that, that they're alone, they're unable to meet th uh, their daily uh, food needs, uh, which is really incredible. And then you add into that the crises in Ethiopia, Yemen, South Sudan. And I, and I guess if, if we're able to get this funding approved, which I hope we do as soon as next week, uh, will USAID, USAID be able to do everything really possible to quickly move uh, this life funding assistance life-saving assistance uh, uh, out the door to programs like the World Food Program and others, if you can give me a kind of a, a sign of hope. Um, well, th first, thanks for the question. I mean, again, it's important to bear in mind what we talked about a little bit earlier, but just is that we were facing an unprecedented food crisis before Putin went and did this. <laughs> You know, and it just adds a whole new layer of recklessness and, and callousness uh, to what we know is already horrific in Afghanistan. So the appeal that was issued for Afghanistan, um, now it feels like a year ago, but it was probably you know only four or five months ago, was the largest ever humanitarian appeal for any country in the UN's <laughs> history, right? And that's a long, a relatively long history at this point. So I think the infrastructure's in place, Senator, um, the, the fall of Afghanistan has been devastating to women's rights, girls' rights, the economy, the humanitarian welfare of the citizens of the country. There is more access. The only thing positive one can say is there, the aid organizations are able to move around more easily because the, the, the front lines are not there that had been there before. So there, you know, we, yes, we will be able to move money to Afghanistan. We are the largest donor. Um, 
we have provided very, very substantial, uh, I think half a billion dollars worth of humanitarian assistance just since the fall of Kabul uh, at the end of August. We need other donors to do more. We need uh, Gulf donors and others who have not yet really been enlisted in this cause to, to, to step up. But above all, uh, we need to see a functional Afghan economy. Um, Senator Risch raised this uh, indirectly, I think, in his opening statement. But we, we can continue to sort of put you know, fingers in the dike here. Uh, but the real problem is gross mismanagement of the Afghan economy. Um, and so there needs to be an independent, solvent central bank in Afghanistan. Right now, the Taliban is not cooperating with a UN initiative to create a kind of financial humanitarian exchange Ambassador, I, I know those dynamics. I really appreciate yeah. the thoroughness of your answer. Sorry. I'm going to try to use my <laughs> remaining time as, as judiciously as possible. Um, it, to the extent that any of us, because we obviously talk to a lot of our peers and nations, uh, partner nations, if there's specific folks that are not stepping up or could be stepping up. Great. I will can, follow up. Yeah, I really Absolutely. would appreciate that. Thank Instead you. of asking this in terms of a question, but I know that the um, Global Food Security Act is going to be reauthorized uh, next year. And I guess I just would like to make sure, and I know this is a focus of yours, so I really don't have too much encouraging to do, but that we see some language in there that really adds support for women, smallholder farmers, uh, uh, focusing programs focusing on women and girls when it comes to that program. And I'd love to be able to work with you on trying to make sure that the language reflects some of those priorities. Um, I, I, I want to just jump in and give you a chance uh, to, to help uh, talk about some of the good work that you all are doing in terms of modernizing uh, the work you're doing. And uh, I just know we need to make sure that money is getting out the door to organizations that are best positioned to do the work. And I know, I think it's uh, DevX is the name of the group, reported on Monday that USAID funding to low and middle income-based organizations actually decreased last year. Uh, and overly complex contracting uh, is a barrier that's often cited uh, uh, that really keeps local innovative organizations from working with USAID. Uh, last year, USAID structured just 1.3% of its grants as straightforward fixed amount awards, which are, even e which are easier for smaller local and more innovative organizations to apply for and manage. And uh, they're among the best ways, I think, to incentivize real results and, and have a higher level of accountability. I know this is a focus of yours, but I, I just hope that that's a, a plan to, to increase uh, resources uh, being distributed in that way. It is, and there is a lag between when a new administrator comes in and, and launches a big agenda uh, uh, as we have on localization. The goal, Senator, is 25% of foreign assistance going to local organizations and 50% being co-designed, co-evaluated uh, with local organizations. We are going to have to find a way to get there. There is a disparate impact of the complexity of USAID rules and regulations on local organizations, whether it's linguistic challenges or just the fact you don't have a world-class accounting firm or general counsel in-house. So one of the reasons we're grateful for the, the uh, plus-up in operating expenses is so that we have the staff that we need to sit down with local organizations to help them jump through those hoops. But we also need to simplify and actually reduce the administrative uh, and other reporting burdens while doing so in a manner, of course, that's sensitive to 
the imperative of avoiding fraud, waste, and abuse. Uh, so this is the, the needle we are seeking to thread. I think the new partners initiative that, that, uh, and local works initiative that were written into law up here have been helpful. And I've launched a $300 million initiative called Central American Local, which is a, a dedicated pool that would only go to local organizations. So I think we're getting there, but it, it's gonna be time, unfortunately, before you start to see uh, the return on, on on this agency's commitment in this regard. Great, and I'll, I'll just bookmark this, not as a question, just to, in my closing to say, I, I really helped to talk to you a little bit more about that, but also examine how we can get double bottom lines for a lot of our investments uh, with a lot of sort of innovative strategies, say, for example, with climate change, more investments in you know scale climate resistant crop varieties in places like India. These could help us with climate change as well as dealing with a bit of their food crisis. Uh, Senator Menendez has returned. I have lost my very brief moment as acting chairman. I felt the power drain away. I'm going to yield to him, but I know Senator Van Hollen's uh, here to go up next. Thank you, Chairman Booker. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and Deputy Chairman uh, Booker. Uh, Madam Administrator, it's uh, great to see you. And just on Afghanistan, as you, you know what a de desperate situation that is, I appreciate the support AID is providing through non-government organizations um, and making sure we do not do anything to support the Taliban. I agree with what Senator Shaheen said. I would say um, at the same time that the uh, Afghan Reconstruction Fund under the supervision of the World Bank, it seems to me, has developed mechanisms to deliver additional funding to help hungry people without helping the Taliban. And I just urge you to continue to support uh, that effort. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that you've all talked about the, the good news of the $40 billion uh, emergency supplemental uh, that passed uh, the House, which importantly uh, does include $5 billion for food um, assistance and dealing with food insecurity. I think we all recognize that given the needs, it's still not enough, but it's a lot better than where we were uh, just a short time ago. Uh, but in terms of the scope of the problem and the different causes, we know there are many. Uh, we know it ranges uh, from COVID supply chain issues to climate change impact on agriculture, especially in places like the Horn of Africa. But the dominant one right now is Putin's war against Ukraine. And I just came from a hearing in the uh, SFOPS Appropriations uh, Subcommittee with David Beasley of the World Food Program. And I asked him about this. Uh, and it was pretty clear that the 25 million tons of grains that are stuck in Ukraine are having a direct impact on food insecurity, rising hunger around the world, both in terms of supply and increased prices, so that while Putin is killing innocent people in Ukraine, he's also making people around the world go more hungry and leading them to the verge of starvation. Can you quantify this problem? Because uh, if we don't get this grain out of the port of Odessa, uh, millions of people are going to go hungry because of what Putin's doing. And I'll just close this part of the question by saying that you know, people have talked about getting the grain out through land routes. Uh, everybody I've talked to says that there's no way to get a significant amount of grain out as quickly as we need to through land routes, that the port, opening the ports is the key. Could you elaborate on the impact around the world of what's happening there? I, I can. I mean, let me just say that 
the Ukrainian outflow of grain in steady state pre-invasion was 5 million tons of grain a month. So that's what we're talking about losing, in, and David Beasley would be more expert on this than I, but um, the, you know, just taking that off the field globally, uh, we're, we're, we're seeing it in food shortages, but we're also seeing it in skyrocketing food prices. And so I think you weren't there yet, Senator, when I, when I shared, I think, an anecdote that really brought this home for me, or a, a fact that brings this home for me, which is that one out of every two or three pieces of bread in sub-Saharan Africa is made with Ukrainian wheat, <laughs> right? Um, and we've all seen the numbers of 85% of uh, Egyptian grains come from Ukraine, et cetera. So, but you asked specifically about the range of solutions. And I think uh, the European Union, actually just before I came here today, uh, just put out a, a, a plan, the European Commission, I should say, um, but it leaves open a lot of a lot of the same questions because we're all grappling with how much throughput could you get, you know, through using traditional train routes, through using roads to get to other ports within Europe. Is there a way to get up, uh, you know, to the Baltic ports, which seem like the closest other ports that could take supplies at scale? But right now, the biggest challenge, and, and, and again, this, we're working with our Ukrainian farmer partners because we have big, USAID has big agriculture programs, has long had big agriculture programs in Ukraine. What they are grappling with is how do you incentive, incentivize farmers to plant now or soon, because it's not quite uh, that time, if they are not seeing a return right. on what they have harvested, if that's just Thank sort of- Madam Administrator, I have just have a few seconds, but I, I appreciate your emphasizing that point. I think the you know Ukrainian uh, farmers want to plant. They do have control of the country, and uh, but they got to be able to get it out. I just want to um, thank uh, you for and the administration for your request for both UNRWA as well as uh, the support, uh, ESS support in the West Bank and Gaza. And I'll follow up with you on the AID Prosper Africa. Please. I want to thank your team for um, briefing uh, the Africa subcommittee staff recently, and it sounds like we're making uh, good progress on Prosper Africa. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Good to see you, uh, even from a distance, uh, Administrator. Um, I wanted to talk to you um, about the topic of uh, energy independence and the way in which um, this administration thinks about the utility of using um, grant dollars or financing to uh, help countries break their dependency on neighbors. And of course, I'm thinking first and foremost about Russia's periphery. This has always seemed to me to be a bit of a blind spot for the U.S. government. We provide a lot of technical assistance on how countries can uh, connect to other energy systems, but we have always been, I, I think, far too reluctant to put hard dollars on the table. In Russia's neighborhood, we leave a lot of that to the Europeans, but the bureaucracy in Brussels is you know, sometimes just absolutely um, unovercomable for many countries that are seeking relatively low-cost projects um, to break away from Russia. Right now, there's a crisis in Bulgaria. As you know, Russia's cut off energy supplies. Um, there's a whole host of ideas on the table to uh, find other avenues for energy import, including U.S. LNG, but there's not a lot of creativity in the U.S. system beyond advice as to 
how to help these countries find their, their next energy source. So um, just love a minute or two from you on whether there's more to be done at USAID, whether um, you need additional authorizations in order to better use and leverage dollars for these kind of projects. Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, I'm back not that long ago from Moldova, which is probably <laughs> the country that most personifies uh, the challenge. Uh, I mean, with the, the amount of um, energy blackmail going on across Europe, there's nothing like visiting a country that is partially occupied by Russian forces and vulnerable in the natural gas, uh, fuel, and electricity domains uh, to, to that blackmail to, to, I think, underscore the importance of securing that independence. I guess what I'd say is it really depends. I, I'd love to just have a more detailed discussion perhaps with our energy envoy, Amos Hochstein, maybe at the table as well to hear more about, about what you have in mind. I mean, we were absolutely instrumental, we USAID, our, our energy team as part of our USAID mission in Ukraine, for example, in you know Ukraine's decision to and capacity to um, free itself uh, to do the test that you saw in, in the electricity sphere to connect itself to Europe which happened just in the early, uh, it was either the, uh, several days before the war, just as the war started. Uh, and that was years in the making and lots of programming, but it's not hard infrastructure in the way that you're describing. And I think where my mind goes is to an, to an entity that I've been spending an awful lot of time uh, working with and through, and that is the Development Finance Corporation. Sure. Because that, and they are looking, for example, in Moldova to see what kinds of investments they can make. It's, it's not a place they've done large things in the past. I mean, it had to transition from OPEC to being a development finance corporation. Um, it, 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 you know, again, the, the energy sector actually, I think, is a place that you have made an exception for them to work. Um, so I think there are, uh, you know, real opportunities throughout Eastern Europe uh, in particular. But the devil's in the details yeah. about what you have specifically in mind. Um, I, I'd want to make sure that USAID is the best bricks and mortar agent, you know, for those kinds of investments. Right now, what we do is we, we embed technical advisors and, you know, contract out those, those energy independence experts who help guide a country toward building right. the organic well, and, and let me, and, and I appreciate, and I appreciate that. It, it, to me, this is the, the greatest need that exists to stabilize economies right now in Eastern Europe is assistance on the future of energy. Um, and thus far, the United States has, you know, decided to provide that, that advice and expertise, but not hard dollars. I mean, the, the, the sort of food distribution economy is a mix of private sector and public sector participation, but we have made the decision in energy to essentially leave it all in the hands of the private sector and to use the public sector as a means of providing advice. I just think that's a mistake. I think it's time for the United States to put some hard dollars on the table. I think that'd be a wise expenditure of our dollars, given how much we're spending on other projects to uh, secure Europe. So I look forward to that conversation with, with you and others in the administration. I appreciate the time, Mr. Chairman. Senator Schatz. Thank you, Chairman. Um, Administrator, thank you uh, for being here. Uh, I want to cover three uh, topics. Uh, first, internet freedom. 
Um, Freedom House reports that internet freedom has declined for the 11th year in a row. Um, State Department ought to be taking the lead here, but uh, USAID and the US Agency for Global Media play uh, critical roles. I know USAID just put out a new digital strategy, which makes some reference to internet freedom, but I'm wondering if you can talk about what you're doing in this space and how it fits into the other agencies that have some responsibility. Um, thank you. I think um, that you see out of the President's Democracy Summit, you know, more attention, of course, to this ever so critical uh, issue. Um, our dedicated program, programmatic money in this space is quite modest, um, as you'll see reflected in the President's uh, budget request far more modest than the importance of the tool of an open and inclusive uh, digital ecosystem. Um, our, I think our slice of it against the, the, the uh, interagency backdrop that you describe is very much on the regulatory side. You know, again, sort of similar to my exchange with Senator Murphy, having advisors embedded, you know, to make sure that the, inter, that and, and you, working with the State Department to apply diplomatic pressure to ensure that um, governments are not going the way of uh, the Chinese approach, even as they're drawing increasingly on uh, on, on Huawei or, or other tools in, in developing countries. Um, the, diplom the diplomacy to reverse that or to change that for those countries that, that haven't yet made those decisions is underway as well. So, so just two, yeah. two um, uh, final things for follow-up later. I'd like Thanks. to get some uh, additional fidelity on how the interagency works and if it hasn't been fully fleshed out, that's understandable, but I'd like to get some clarity there. And then secondly, what would a more robustly funded you know, personnel model look like um, for this? I, I wanna move on to deforestation. Uh, last fall, I introduced the Forest Act, which creates a framework for the federal government to stop commodity-driven um, deforestation around the planet, which is the main cause of deforestation. Uh, in Glasgow, Glasgow at the COP, President Biden committed to the Declaration on Forest and land use that sets the goal of no global deforestation by 2030. The Lacey Act is a great tool, but as you know, it deals with forest products, not um, commodity-driven uh, deforestation. So can you tell me how Biden's commitment is changing and shaping USAID's work on the ground to reduce deforestation? Specifically, I'm interested in commodity-driven deforestation. Um, again, not not continually encouraging follow-up with, with our experts on this, but I do think, you know, given the energy we are now, um, no pun intended, putting into the deforestation or the, reduce, the reduction of deforestation effort, um, it'd be worth someone on your staff uh, touching base with our climate coordinator. But our request uh, in the budget uh, that has uh, gone up recently includes $335 million in sustainable landscapes funding, um, and that's 135% increase uh, over the 21 enacted levels. Um, I think that you did see the nature-based solutions uh, emphasis at COP to an unprecedented extent, and so additional ideas you have as to, as to what uh, that should look like, but. Well, so I think, I think it's just, so I can get to my last question. I think, it's, I think it's three things. First, let's follow up um, and, and work with your staff. Second, let's figure out what the kind of staffing needs are. But I also just want to put a fine point on, there's a tendency to think in, when we talk about deforestation, about Lacey Act implementation and, and enforcement. That's absolutely important. I've supported that since I got to the Senate, but that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about TA and financial assistance to help people to move off of the commodities 
um, that are actually driving the deforestation uh, trend around the planet. And then final question for you. Um, I was pleased to see that USAID released a vision statement for digital health in, the, in late 2020. Um, telehealth works. Um, telehealth is particularly exciting in a lot of the countries uh, in, in which um, USAID works. Can you tell me how far along you are in operationalizing um, the vision that was released and, and what you need in order to scale telehealth uh, across the planet? Um, just let me say one last word about your prior question on, on reforestation or reducing deforestation. I, just to say, I think one of the things that we are trying to do organizationally is bring about uh, uh, just much more day-to-day -day synergy between our Bureau on Food Security and Resilience and our Climate Environment team. I mean, those synergies can exist in any agency, but but to really uh, create that kind of integration, which I think is will end up creating structures that are more responsive to the to the way you formulated the question previously. Uh, with regard to telework, um, telehealth, I think, uh, a tele, tele <laughs> I've got return to got work it. on the mind. Everybody's coming back to the office uh, in a week or two. Um, on telehealth, uh, President Biden actually just today, I think you, you might have seen, launched uh, a new health worker training uh, initiative. I think this is going to be uh, this this question of how to integrate telehealth training into healthcare worker training is going to be one of the uh, foundational questions. I think Atul Gawande, our relatively recently uh, uh, confirmed assistant administrator for global health, is very seized with you know bringing these digital tools to bear. What that means practically, again, I'd want to dig into the details. We, as a as a agency, we are, as you may know, uh, very weighted in our funding toward HIV/AIDS and PEPFAR, malaria, TB, to very specific disease burdens. We are trying. Uh, to orient the agency around something quite basic, which is this year, this past year, saw the first reduction in global life expectancy uh, in more than a century. It's a really, really, really bad news. We're trying to think about what does it mean to structure USAID around actually reversing that and showing increases in, in, in global life expectancy. And I actually think telehealth uh, as getting healthcare to more people is going to be a critical part of the answer. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Markey. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much, and uh, thank you for the great job which uh, you are doing in these uh, troubling times that we're in. Um, can we talk a little bit about um, climate change and uh, the Indo-Pacific area? Uh, I've, I've been able to include in the Competes Act. We hope at some moment this year we will have the Competes Act actually become law, but a requirement that the United States government lead a robust interagency climate resiliency and adaptation strategy for the Indo-Pacific. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you might be seeing in that region and what impacts climate change is having in terms of destabilizing uh, impacts? Well, Senator, I, I you know, you're <laughs> Like talking to Michael Jordan about basketball here, uh, you you know the impacts uh, far better than I do. But um, I even saw in my days as UN ambassador, you know, permanent representatives of countries uh, that they feared would not be member states of the United Nations, even 20 years uh, in the into the future because of the actual outright disappearance of the country uh, into the sea. 
So adaptation is with us, it is here upon us. You will see in the 23 budget request, both, uh, as you well know, very substantial requests for increases in climate financing um, and uh, very substantial requests, everything is relative, for development assistance in the Pacific Islands. Uh, I think nearly a doubling of assistance requested there. Um, on adaptation, as you know, President Biden at COP uh, uh, launched the PREPARE initiative. I think another way to put it for us is that there's not one aspect of USAID's programming that isn't now touched by climate change, touched by and large negatively by climate cha change. And everything we do across all of our program areas has to be, again, filtered through helping countries adapt to what is upon them. And again, it's, it's particularly acute for small island developing states like those in the Pacific. Yeah, the uh, 100 years ago when my grandmother and grandfather were getting off the boat from Ireland, half of that CO2 is up there and will stay up there for another 1,000 years. So it's all cumulative. So, so much of the CO2 is red, white, and blue. We, we were earliest into the Industrial Revolution, and Representative uh, Velasquez uh, over in the um, House and I introduced a bill to create a resettlement pathway for climate displaced persons. Um, in the 2021 White House Climate Migration Report recommended that the executive branch work with Congress to create such a legal pathway. Can you talk about that? you know, threat that we have, it's not just prospective, but it's real right now in terms of climate refugees and our need to respond. Yeah, I mean, the, the chairman actually, in his some of his opening comments was talking, or in our opening exchange, talked about, you know, the climate shocks, the food shocks, and the incredible potential for the escalation of the already really worrying uh, migration trends that we are seeing. I mean, we see it even at our at our own southern border and just seeing the, the, the changing demographics of who is there. We're seeing people in mass from, from countries where we weren't seeing anywhere near those numbers in the past, as well as, of course, the traditional outward migration. Um, so, you know, what we do is try to work with countries to build more resilient infrastructure to um, ensure that they're using drought resistant or heat resistant seas. We're bringing the latest innovation technology from universities here and all around the world to bear and in, to have a small, as compressed uh, uh, a feedback loop in terms of what we learn and then what we plant uh, and, and support as, as possible. Uh, but there's no coincidence that you see the hottest years on record correlating with historic migration and historic conflict. I mean, um, it's 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 linear. Can can I also ask you? Um, we're on we're on the front line now, helping Ukraine to beat back authoritarian incursion into that country into Europe. Um, but we're not still not on the front line in terms of providing aid for the vaccination of people around the world, with the goal of seventy percent of the world vaccinated by uh, October of this year. Can you talk a, a little bit about how important that is and uh, why Congress should act to provide that funding? It's so important. Uh, it is so important. Uh, it is important for the health and safety of Americans that we drastically reduced the risk of new variants. 
And we've, we've done an amazing job. We, not USAID, but we, uh, the countries on the front lines of this pandemic who started with very little of the infrastructure that we're blessed to have here in this country. When President Biden held his first COVID summit back in September, uh, lower and lower middle income countries were at 12% vaccination rate, Senator. Now they're at 52%. Sub-Saharan Africa still lags behind, but in the countries where we lost, launched Global Vax, which is a Get Shots in Arms initiative that we launched in December to put those billion doses that we purchased from Pfizer, uh, get those shots in arms, we're seeing landmark improvements. Uh, I mean, in a country like Uganda going from 21% of eligible adults with one shot to 71% just in a matter of months. We can do this, and it is an investment in our own health and safety here in the United States. And to not do it, we have, we have expended now 90% of the American Rescue Plan emergency funds that were given to us. We're incredibly grateful for it. So are, are the countries on the front lines of this pandemic who haven't reached the thresholds we have reached here in this country. We are exhausting those funds. This effort to vaccinate the world will grind to a halt if we do not get new resources, and we will regret it. I agree with you. We have to do Ukraine, but we have to do vaccines as well. And I'll also say to you, you know, at this particularly perilous time, whatever you can do to help um, give some additional help to the um, Red Sox bullpen uh, would be it's, greatly appreciated. I think they need you. That's the only solution. It would be an upgrade. <laughs> you. Thank you for all your great work. Be an upgrade for the Red Sox, be a downgrade for the Senate. Senator Mar Senator Coons. <laughs> True. Thank you, Chairman Menendez. Um, thank you, uh, Administrator Power. It's great to be with you. Uh, I just finished chairing a hearing uh, of the SFOPS subcommittee at which Dr. O'Toole Gawande um, testified. Uh, as well as Dr. Frieden um, and Dr. Ryan from um, CD, former CDC director and uh, from the World Health Organization. Dr. Gawande um, uh, testified in response to a number of our questions uh, about how soon um, global COVID funding will run out, both for USAID and globally, and the consequences. But I think some of this bears um, repeating or further exploration. All three testified that it is very difficult to predict when a more lethal and transmissive variant may emerge. In fact, um, our ability to detect new variants globally is dropping rapidly as the number of tests being performed and the monitoring uh, infrastructure in other countries is dropping off. Um, I'd be interested in hearing from you um, as our nation's development leader, how significant has been the loss of development gains as a result of the global COVID pandemic my impression is that we've invested billions in PEPFAR, in the President's Malaria Initiative, in the work against TB and uh, other um, infectious and transmissive diseases, and billions in improving access to water and to health and to education. And the COVID-19 global pandemic has uh, been a sledgehammer to that progress. What's your impression? Uh, thank you, Senator. I I would just uh, repeat something that I, I have to believe that, that came up uh, if Assistant Administrator Atul Gawande was testifying, uh, which I think is just worth pausing over, and that is that we are experiencing globally our first decline in life expectancy uh, in more than 100 years. I mean, if that doesn't sort of sum up the shattering setbacks that have occurred um, in development. And, and again, this was, uh, in, in, when it comes to education, 
you know, seeing uh, tens of millions of children drop out of school and not come back, but also just the learning losses that those of us who are parents may have experienced firsthand with all of the luxuries of having broadband access and, and being able to, uh, you know, to, to tr try to supervise that. But the circumstances in which learners are dropping out of school globally, uh, you know, there's no way to compensate for those, for those lost years other than, again, to make these investments to get them back in school. And seeing the health setbacks uh, on TB, on malaria, in areas where otherwise we were on a, a solid trajectory in part because of the generosity of the American people and you all uh, in making these investments. Um, so we have to halt the slide and then set really big and audacious goals that we used to take for granted, which is that life expectancy needs to increase and we need to uh, generate resources and make investments against that goal. We've donated hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine to dozens and dozens of countries. My impression is that without additional funding to help fragile public health systems in underdeveloped countries actually deliver them all the way out into the most remote places and to overcome vaccine hesitancy, um, we're at risk of wasting or of losing that resource in a lot of countries. Do you have any rough sense of the scale of that potential lost investment? Well. Let me, let me address the question in two ways. I mean, first of all, we, the United States, with very strong support, bipartisan support up here, um, have purchased a billion Pfizer uh, vaccines. And we have gotten about 400 million of those vaccines uh, into arms and about more than 500 million vaccines uh, generally out the door to developing countries where they are so... Uh, desperately needed, and where, again, in some sub-Saharan African countries, you're seeing under 10% vaccination rates, including among immunocompromised people, which is where the greatest risks are of the most dangerous kinds of variants potentially uh, developing over time. Um, so we need to get those shots in arms. We've, we've purchased those vaccines. The vaccines are there after more than a year in which supply was a major gating issue. We have gotten past that. Um, but Vaccines just don't dance from the tarmac, you know, all the way into rural areas. They don't overcome vaccine hesitancy uh, or misinformation of the kind that has been propagated, including by some of our adversaries globally. So we need to support that. And again, Senator, uh, we have the results. We launched Global Vax in December. The number of people in December 2020, 2021 that were vaccinated, fully vaccinated in Ghana was 12.4%. Now, of those eligible, 25.4%. When we make the investment in cold chain storage, in pop-up vaccine uh, facilities, in data system strengthening, um, in meeting people where they are, bringing the vaccine to them, we are seeing uptake, and that is an investment in our health security. Last question briefly. Um, because our vaccines, which are better and stronger and more effective, were not available, uh, millions of people in dozens of countries were forced to take Russian or Chinese vaccines that have proven ineffective against Omicron. How significant is this moment? Um, we face three different reasons, I think, for us to engage in the next round of funding. Simple humanitarian concern for the health and welfare of others, um, demonstrating the United States is a reliable public health partner, but also there's an element of um, showing the world that we've not just invented and delivered for our own people the most effective, effective vaccines, but that we're now delivering them into the arms of millions in the developing world. Is that a significant factor? 
Well, it certainly is a significant effect. Um, I, you know, I think on, on given that we are all stewards um, of taxpayer resources, I think the fact that this is an investment in our health security uh, should be reason enough. But I'm seeing it, Senator, in every country I visit, uh, the desire to have mRNA vaccines, the belief that these are the gold standard, the knowledge even in remote communities about which vaccines are deemed the most effective, the most enduring with their effects. And we are, you know, a lot. Of, most of the developing world has not been boosted. So even those who received vaccines that haven't proven effective against recent variants are, are very, very interested in getting an mRNA boost, which can actually shore up uh, the, the effectiveness even, even on the prior vaccine. So this is a major strategic advantage. And maybe just the last thing I'd say is, I, I spent some time when I was out of government looking at the effects of PEPFAR beyond the public health effects, but looking, for example, at the standing of George W. Bush and the standing of the United States while in the wake of the invasion of Iraq, it was not terribly favorable in many parts of the world, but in sub-Saharan Africa, where these programs uh, popped up, where they endured, where they saved you know, millions of, of um, millions and millions of lives and gave people hope where they had lacked it. Uh, the standing of the United States, the standing of that administration, and, and all who have followed it in providing that support uh, soared. And, and I think you see that this is, this is America putting a man on the moon again, and people are experiencing American science, American innovation, and American generosity firsthand, and it makes a difference in how they see the United States, and at a time when we are in a battle for the soul of the world, as well as uh, uh, you know, uh, a battle between uh, democracy and authoritarianism, this matters. This this uh, respect for the United States, for a model of governance that produces vaccines and then gives them away and doesn't sell them, it matters. Thank you, Administrator. Thank you for your forbearance, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Madam Administrator, just a final a couple of questions. Uh, the administration is working to address the drivers of migration from Central America. The resources that USAID has committed are significant, but they are nonetheless insufficient to address the challenges we face. If we really want to address the root causes of migration, we must recognize the main drivers. Miguel Diaz-Canal, Nicolás Maduro, Daniel Ortega. Combined, these three despots have forcibly displaced several million people from their homelands. Worse still, they use migration in the same way that they use food and access to basic services, as a political tool to manipulate the population and to gain leverage with the international community. We also have to recognize that the vast majority of the displaced people in this hemisphere have not fled, notwithstanding you know, public perception, to the U.S. southwest border. Uh, They've actually fled to neighboring countries like Costa Rica, Colombia, Peru, to places where they have family or friends, where they speak the same language and share a culture. But we have not invested the resources necessary to assist with the long-term integration of refugees and migrants in a systemic way. Nor have we helped countries gain the full economic benefits of migration at the same time they are facing the challenges of migration, more children in schools, more demand on social services, uh, the consequences of providing employment. I could go on and on. So is USAID looking at this question 
of how we assist the integration of those fleeing their countries in the region. Because at some point, if we don't do that, they will certainly then make their way to the, to the southern border. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's an incredibly important question. I think it is one that um, the entire administration is is grappling with, and I, I, I mentioned that. Um, that's often the case, of course, in any of the challenges we've described, but it's particularly the case here because a number of the countries in which these migrants uh, are settling are not countries where USAID still even has a mission uh, uh, because of the development progress that those countries have made often in the past with USAID support. So I think we're thinking a lot about the, the uh, incentives and support those countries would need. We're doing so also with the Inter-American Development Bank, uh, the World Bank, the IMF, and others, you know, thinking through what role uh, the multilateral development banks can have uh, there um, in, in terms of ensuring that those countries have the resources. So to what support. I'd like to get you to yep. commit to me is to uh, work with the State Department to think about of how we uh, ultimately uh, find a process which we can incentivize to ultimately seek this integration, because if not, it will come to our southern border. I, I think you're aware, Mr. Chairman, that discussions about regional migration agreement, you know, much more comprehensive approach than has been taken, you know, this kind of more piecemeal approach that has been taken in the past, in the past those discussions are very much underway, and I'm hopeful that at the same time, America's- I appreciate that. I don't mean to interrupt you, but here's the point. <laughs> that, uh, in fact, uh, the reality is that, yes, they're, they're having discussions, basically the discussions, how are you going to keep people away from our border? I get it. I understand it. Let's be frank here. The question is, if we work to integrate these people into the countries in which they first come to, and can be a catalyst and an incentivizer of that, then we will have less demand and we will have a better society in these countries. Otherwise, they will have all of the demand, none of the upside, and eventually we will have the challenge. So it's not about dealing with the question of how do we keep them away from our border alone. It's how do we find a way to integrate those who have had to flee for freedom, just as we're doing for the Ukrainians. You know, maybe the, the Venezuelans don't look like Ukrainians. Maybe the Cubans don't look like Ukrainians. Maybe the Nicaraguans don't look like Ukrainians, but they are fleeing nonetheless. So uh, I've had enough about listening about migration uh, and the efforts uh, by those who just are myopic and think that we should just put up a wall, uh, put the uh, hands across the border in terms of military, uh, and think that that's going to solve the problem. It's not. By the same token, I've had enough from the administration uh, about uh, all their engagements is with countries, how do we stop people from coming? There has to be a better thought than that. So, uh, and, and, if, and if there's not an agency, if, if AID is not an agency that can help lead the way in that, I don't know who can. Let me just ask you two other final questions. Uh, we, uh, I am pleased to see that uh, one of your first acts as administrator was to appoint uh, USAID's first chief diversity officer and to create a diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility office to achieve those goals. Can you give me a sense of how that office is going to play this role in USAID more precisely? How do you plan to institutionalize uh, AID's, uh, DEIA's efforts to ensure that they are lasting? 
Thank you, Senator. I don't know how much time I have to, to uh, respond. Uh, since I had to sit through everybody's questions, you have unlimited time. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Um, so I, I, I would just say uh, that the individual and, and her team are, 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 are uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion accommodation coordinator, sits within the front office. Uh, the portfolio involves not only looking at recruitment, and doing things like doubling the number of pain fellowships, going to minority-serving institutions like Tuskegee, Delaware State, Florida International University, Morehouse, and others, uh, several of which I, I have visited personally to make this recruitment pitch. But also the individual is looking at retention, and we've done a lot of uh, examination of what the barriers for retaining uh, underrepresented communities have been at, at USAID, and now it it comes time to thinking about, okay, well, how do we apply uh, lessons from that? So that's that's one aspect of what the individual is doing, working really closely with our um, foreign service, um, our, our human capital and ta t talent management office, which looks at the direct hires, but also really thinking about these questions for personal service contractors and, and people who are hired at USAID in other ways. We're also bringing this DEIA agenda to... Uh, the bulk of our workforce internationally, which is nationals of the countries in which we work. So while it's true we don't have a mission still in Costa Rica, we have missions in 80 countries. And the majority, 70% of our staff in those countries are nationals of the countries in which we work. And yet often we're recruiting from the same kind of talent pools there uh, you know, as, as we have for many, many years. And that means, again, slighting sometimes um, ethnic or religious minorities or, or people, again, who might come from more rural areas. So we want to bring that uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda there. Also in our contracting and our procurement, we have tried to make it easier now to, to lower the barriers of entry uh, for small businesses, uh, for uh, small businesses and, uh, and other contractors um, uh, who are led by women or led by minorities. Um, that is a work in progress. Even getting the data on that uh, has proven more challenging than I would have expected. But we want to see real uh, changes as well in, in um, the diversity of, of the partnerships that we do, because we are expending um, significant uh, resources. And to just do so in the same old places, in the same old ways, I think would be falling short. Well, I, I appreciate all that. And I, I would just say uh, that, um, as I say to uh, different leaders from the Business Roundtable who come to see me, uh, diversity starts at the top in terms of who leads your company, or in this case, who leads uh, the agency. And it starts at the top by making it a priority and having those who work underneath you understand that part of the judgment as, their to, as to their performance will be how they perform in this regard. And then we get true change at the end of the day. And so um, I think you're headed in the right direction. I just uh, will urge you uh, when you're having your uh, senior staff levels, that this is a clear message to them about what you expect throughout. Lastly, um, I'm concerned that USAID has not prioritized the critical work of supporting trade unions and non-governmental organizations devoted to workers' rights. Uh, it seems to me that U.S. foreign aid and development policies and programs have to also prioritize worker rights and freedom of association protections 
in order that we can achieve the equitable economic development and strengthen democratic practices abroad. So could you describe to me uh, what uh, you have done to build USAID's labor capacity and expertise internally to the organization? And how will you ensure that USAID programs are effectively strengthening and promoting labor rights and workers' voices internationally? Um, thank you. Well, I'll just touch upon something you and I had the chance to talk about by phone, so I won't, I won't belabor, but um, as we seek to expand lawful pathways uh, for migration in northern Central America, we, we're very uh, excited about that effort. We think it, it, it provides a wonderful opportunity for American businesses and for uh, people seeking economic opportunity in the Northern Triangle countries uh, for, for that matchmaking to occur, and it can be a win-win situation, but it won't be a win-win unless we also uh, are uh, incredibly vigilant on the labor rights uh, side of things. And so we are looking working with um, the governments of the three countries to think about how to strengthen uh, knowledge and awareness of people who come nor into, into uh, the United States about where uh, they can find protection, where they can find resources. You know, Mexico has consulates uh, sprinkled throughout the, the country. Those, the uh, three Northern Triangle countries, of course, don't have quite the same presence, but still have resources to draw upon uh, and we are working particularly as it relates to the H-2A program uh, to, to, to make sure, again, that the rights of farm workers in particular are protected uh, when they come north of the border. So just to say, sometimes it doesn't show up as a direct line item in a budget, but it's about the integration of attention to labor rights uh, in, in the programming that we do. I would also note that the President's uh, 2023 budget request, as we've already discussed in this hearing, includes a substantial increase for democracy rights and governance programming. I think central to that is the question of uh, how we uh, enhance our support uh, for worker rights, um, whether in a country like Bangladesh, where you've done so, so much work, um, uh, or, or globally, because uh, one line item in the funding is to try to support social movements, and it is more often than not uh, workers who are at the forefront of, of democratic movements who try to, to bring about more accountable governance of the kind that's well, been Well, I appreciate that, and we'll see how it unfolds, and we look forward to working with you to ensure that. I should have said this at the beginning of the hearing, but we welcome as well your assistant uh, administrator for legislative affairs, uh, Jody Herman, who was the staff director of the Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, good choice by you uh, at the end of the day, respected on both sides of the aisle. Um, there are no other members seeking questions, so uh, this record will remain open to the close of business uh, Friday, May the 13th. Um, I'd urge members who have a question that they have not gotten to ask to submit it by that time. And with the thanks of the committee for your participation, Madam Administrator, and your service, this hearing is adjourned.